good to see you guys. Uh, before we dive in, if you weren't here last Sunday, I need to catch you up on a change we're making really quickly because it's happening next Sunday, all right? Uh, maybe you've seen the announcement online, I don't know, but I just want to make sure you know about this, okay? Uh, we've been in this building for about five months now, and it's been a great season, uh, but we have been having serious space issues lately, especially in this 10 o'clock gathering, okay? Uh, just over the last few weeks, we have been right at capacity, both in this room and in our kids' ministry wing, and that's a great problem, but it's also created a lot of other problems that need solutions, and so our leadership team has been talking about how to solve the issue, and uh, we came up with two ideas. Number one concerns seating. Right, I told you about this last week, just by moving some pews and shortening the gap between chairs, we have been able to fit about 94 more seats into the room, which we think is going to be a big help. Uh, but the other solution concerns gathering times, okay? We don't think just putting more chairs in the room is going to be the end-all solution. And so here's what we're doing. Ever since 2014, we've had gatherings at both 10 and 1130, other gatherings around those, but those have been staples for us, and they've worked really well. In fact, over the years, the attendance at those gatherings has been almost identical. And uh, on certain years, 1130 has actually been larger than 10 o'clock. And so what that tells us is that 1130 is a really good time and 1145 is probably a little too late. Our problem right now is we got about 250 more people coming at this hour than we do at 1045, or I'm excuse me, at 1145. And so we need to find a way to even the crowds out. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to try a big experiment. And I tell you, anytime we make a change like this, that's all it is. It's a big experiment. If the experiment works, then great. We're all going to look like geniuses. If not, we're going to kill it. We're going to try something else. Okay. But the experiment is simply this. Starting next Sunday, we're going to shift all of our gathering times back 15 minutes. 15 minutes. So our new times will be 8 a.m., 9.45, and 11.30. 8 a.m., 9.45, and 11.30. The specific ask for you is this, and I also said this last Sunday. Please do not all of you just come 15 minutes earlier. Because if everybody that already comes at 10 o'clock just shows up 15 minutes earlier, we're going to have the same problem we have right now, okay? Um, I'm asking a lot of you over the course of this next week to figure out if you can come at a different time, okay? If it works with your schedule, uh, works with your calendar, works with your kids, will you come to 1130 or maybe even 8 o'clock, okay? I don't need all of you to do that, but we do need a substantial amount of you to do that. Uh, because we are dangerously close right now to being at that point where we're having to turn people away and we don't ever want to be that church that says to people, sorry, we don't have a place for you, right? If people are showing up for church to hear the word and to hear about Christ, we always want to make sure that they have a place here. Amen. And so by giving up a seat, you're actually helping to fulfill the mission of Cross Point. And so that's the ask. All right. Uh, but again, February 3rd, next Sunday is when this starts. And so don't forget. All right. Just mark it down right now. It's Super Bowl Sunday, it's the Sunday that we start our new series, and it's the Sunday we go to these new times, 8 o'clock, 9.45, Y'all with me? All right, awesome. Well, with that said, let's grab our Bibles if we have them. Uh, today we are in week 17 of our study on the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in Genesis 18 together. Genesis chapter 18. Well, growing up in church, I can remember hearing consistently that I needed to avoid certain kinds of people. People who didn't look like me, live like me, believe like me, behave like me. And I still remember the Bible verse that was used to sell this, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. 
bad company corrupts good character? Have you ever heard this? A lot of you have. What you may have never heard is the context of that verse. I know I never did. Uh, It wasn't until later that I learned that this verse actually appears in a passage where the Apostle Paul is addressing false teaching about the resurrection. And he says to the Christians in the city of Corinth, hey, you need to avoid those false teachers denying the reality of resurrection because if you hang out around them and listen to what they're teaching, uh, their bad teaching and their bad company is going to corrupt you. Listen, just a quick side note on this. This is why context matters so much when you're reading the Bible. Like you always need to know why things were written, who was writing them, who they were being written to. Because if you don't, the temptation is to rip verses out of context and to start using them in ways they were never meant to be used. And I've told you this in the past. Anytime you rip a verse out of context, it becomes a con. Amen? So don't do it. It's bad stuff, all right? Well, look, as a result of buying into this message that I consistently heard, what I started doing was building up these walls between me and the big bad world out there. (laughs) And for years, I lived in the safety of this little Christian bubble showing little to no regard for people far from God and in desperate need of Jesus Christ. And can I tell you what messed that up for me? This book. Uh, I came to a point in my life where I thought to myself, you know what, I should probably start reading the Bible for myself. I've heard what all these other people have said about the Bible, but it would probably be a good idea for me to know what it actually says. And so when I started reading it, here's what I found. And I would highly encourage you to do this, by the way. Like, don't be that person that just shows up on Sundays and listens to me tell you what to believe about this book. Like, get this book out and read it for yourself and read it with other followers of Jesus and see if James is actually telling you the truth, okay? When I did that, here's what I found. I found that Jesus befriended the very people I avoided. Crazy. Like, everywhere I looked in the Gospels, there was Jesus hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and with those people that the religious leaders of his day deemed unclean and unacceptable to God. But I also found, please don't miss this, highly important, I also found that there was always purpose behind his befriending. You see, it's really important for you to know this, especially in a culture like ours, uh, a culture in which people love to twist the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus to promote their own agendas. And you've heard people do this, right? People oftentimes will say stuff like this, hey, uh, Jesus said we shouldn't judge anybody. Jesus said we should just love everybody, and so people should get to do whatever they want to do. False. Jesus never taught that loving other people means letting them do whatever they want to do. Nor did he befriend sinful people to promote that false message. No, instead, Jesus befriended sinners for the purpose of calling them away from sin and unbelief and into a new and different way of life marked by faith and confidence in God. And in our passage for today, here's what's so interesting. We find him doing a very similar thing for Abraham and Sarah. Check it out. Genesis 18, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. And the Lord appeared to him, that's Abram, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, Oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. And so they said, do as you've said. 
And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and he took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. We're going to stop there and talk. Uh, Over about the past 10 years or so, I've had the great privilege of traveling to different countries all over the world for mission work. And in many of the countries that I've visited, like Brazil, Peru, Nicaragua, Jamaica, Burkina Faso, Africa, uh, in a lot of those countries still today, people get up really early in the mornings and they get most of their work done. And in the middle of the day, when it gets really hot, they take a little siesta. I'm convinced we should take some cues from them. Amen? We could learn some things from that here in our great country of America. But what we see in our passage is that same thing happening. Okay, Abraham's workers, they've gotten up really early. They've accomplished all their morning chores. It's now the middle of the day. It's really hot and everyone's taking a break. And so we find Abraham sitting in the door of his tent. I imagine his feet are probably kicked off. He's just starting to close his eyes and he's dozing off when he senses the presence of people around him. You know, it makes me think of that experience that every parent in the room has had or will have at some point in your life. You know, it's the middle of the night, you're dead asleep, yet somehow you experience this sensation of of another person being in the room with you. Some of y'all, you know where this is going, right? And so you open your eyes and your kids like right there in your face. (laughs) You have a heart attack, you jump out of your skin and all you can think is, help me Jesus, I almost punched my kid. It's an awful feeling. And I imagine Abraham experienced that feeling in this moment. He opens his eyes and three men who weren't there just a moment ago are now standing there in front of him. Now, the question is, who were those three men? Well, we learn from chapter 19, the following chapter, that two of these men were angels. We're going to see that in a couple of weeks when we talk about the destruction of Sodom, that wicked city. But we also learn from verse 1 of chapter 18 that the third man was the Lord himself. Look, if you were here just a couple weeks ago when we talked about the story of Hagar, I pointed out for you the first Christophany that we see in the Bible. A Christophany, remember, is an Old Testament appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus. So in other words, a Christophany is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, making a special appearance in the Old Testament with a temporary body, all for a specific purpose. Here in our text, what we see is the second Christophany in the Bible. Jesus Christ, yet again, Son of God, takes on a temporary earthly body, and he pays Abraham a visit. Now, we have no idea if Abraham knew who he was from the onset. There's debate over this. If he didn't know, he would soon find out based on the conversation they were getting ready to have. But what's clear from his reaction is that he at least knew something was different about these guys right away, right? Instead of pretending to be asleep or just sending them away, guys, I don't have time for this. You're ruining my afternoon nap. Um, Abraham pops up and immediately starts to serve them. And I love this from his service, what we learn and what we see is what it looks like to serve the Lord properly, And we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but before we talk about what it looks like to serve the Lord properly, I thought it would be helpful to point out that oftentimes in the Bible, when it comes to serving the Lord, there's a lot of confusion. And I'll give you some examples of what I mean, okay? Uh, Joshua 24, 15. In that verse, Joshua makes the famous statement that some of us have on our doormats or a picture hanging on the wall in our house somewhere. 
as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? You've heard this. Yet Jesus shows up centuries later and in Matthew 10, 45, he, the Lord says, I came to serve, not to be served. Or what about this? Psalm 100, verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Yet in Acts 17, 25, we're told that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything from us. And so how do we make sense of that? I mean, do we serve God or do we not serve God? Well, the answer is yes, kind of both. Okay, we serve him, but serving him is different from what you might think. All right, listen to what I'm about to say because this is really important. Serving God according to the scriptures is not about you giving God anything. Okay, Acts 17 is right. God doesn't need anything from you. There's nothing that God needs that you have, okay? In fact, everything you need comes from him, amen? But listen, neither is serving God about you doing certain things from him in hopes that he gives you something in return. That is not Christianity. That is called karma, and we don't believe that trash, okay? No, serving God according to the Bible is simply this. It is you using what God has already given you, your time, your energy, your health, your relationships, your resources, all for the purpose of putting him on display in the world around you. Again, there is a proper way to do that, and Abraham shows us the way. So let me give you these things, all right? If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you four things to write down. Number one, when serving the Lord, serve quickly. When serving the Lord, serve quickly. Here's a little Bible reading tip for you. Uh, Whenever you're reading through the scriptures, always pay attention to words or phrases that are repeated. Because oftentimes when words or phrases are repeated, they're really important to the text that you're reading. And that's absolutely true here in Genesis 18. All right, we're told that at 99 years old, in the heat of the day, Abraham ran to his visitors. And then he went quickly into the tent to find his wife, Sarah. And he said to her, quick, make some cakes. (laughs) And then he ran out to his herd and he found a calf and he took it to this young man who prepared it quickly. Listen, what those words tell us and that repetition tells us is that Abraham was in a big hurry to serve the Lord. In fact, the picture is one of him moving at somewhat of a frantic pace to make sure that the Lord was honored and the Lord was cared for. And I would say to us today that the same needs to be true of us as his people. When it comes to serving the Lord, obeying the Lord, living lives that honor the Lord, this is not something that you and I delay in, right? It's not something that we get to tomorrow. Well, you know, there's some things that I really want to do for myself and some things I want to experience in life. And so, you know, I'll get to that whole serving the Lord thing later. No, serving the Lord is something that we do with urgency today, Because we know life is short, there's no promise of tomorrow, we want our lives to count for something that actually matters, and above all else, we want God to be glorified, amen? So we serve Him quickly. Number two, when serving the Lord, we serve humbly. We serve humbly. I find it incredible that after Abraham runs to his visitors, the first thing that he does is he throws himself down in the dirt at their feet, just bows before them. And then he calls himself a servant. And after he provides the meal, he actually takes on the role of a table waiter and he just stands by watching. Hey, you guys need anything? You okay? Let me know if you need something. If you need something, I'm here. I'll take care of you. It's amazing, isn't it? And think about who he was. He was a very wealthy man from a prominent family who had received incredible promises from God. Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. 
All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Nations and kings will come from you. Yet here he is in the dirt taking on the role of a servant. That is a picture of humility. And my friends, this is how we are meant to serve the Lord. Uh, Years ago, I had a mentor in my life say something to me that's always stuck with me. (laughs) He looked me square in the face and he said, James, you are not as important as you think you are. I didn't know whether to thank him or hit him, right? It's like, how am I supposed to feel about that? But guess what? He was absolutely right. And because I love you today and I care about you today, I want you to know neither are you. Right? It doesn't matter how much money you make, how much power you hold, how many people you lead. It doesn't matter how many followers you have on social media. You are not nearly as important as you think you are. And the proof of that is found in the fact, listen, that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been called to take on the role of a humble servant just like him. And guess what that means for you? It means you forget about yourself entirely. It means that you consistently and constantly put the needs of other people before you ever consider your own needs. And it even means that you get down in the dirt and you serve other people regardless of who they are. If, in fact, that's what is needed for the character of Christ to be put on display through you. We serve humbly. Number three, when serving the Lord, serve generously. When serving the Lord, serve generously. I love that after these visitors show up, Abraham doesn't go back into the tent and say to his wife, Hey, babe. Uh, we have those leftovers from last night. Got some guys out here. Thought it'd be a nice gesture to feed them. And so, you know, if you could just pop that in the microwave real quick and bring it out, that'd be awesome. <laughs> no, instead, he runs inside the tent and he says, hey, babe, three seas of flour. Hurry up. That's six gallons of flour, by the way. I have no idea why anybody would need that many cakes, but Abraham wanted to make sure they were taken care of. And then he runs out to the field, finds a calf, and he doesn't just cut a few steaks off of this thing and keep the rest for himself. No, he has the entire calf prepared. And then to top it all off, he brings some yogurt and milk for dessert. Right? This was a royal feast. And in providing this feast, what Abraham was doing was simply this. He was generously offering the best that he had to the Lord. (laughs) And can I just tell you, as people that make up this family, this body of Cross Point City Church, I pray that we would be those people. I pray that when it comes to serving the Lord, we wouldn't be those people who say to God, "Um, God, here's all I've got left. God, you know, I, I gave my first and my best to other things and to other people. There's just some important stuff going on in my life that I really wanted to do or take care of. And so, God, I, I mean, I've got some things for you, but it's my leftovers, my leftover time, my leftover energy, my leftover passion, my leftover money. I pray that we wouldn't be those people. But instead, in response to the amazing grace we have received through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I pray that we would be those people whose desire is to always give our first and best to the Lord. We serve generously. And then finally, when serving the Lord, serve cooperatively. When serving the Lord, serve cooperatively. Did you notice that Abraham did not serve the Lord by himself? But he enlisted other people to serve with him. Hey, babe, you're great at making cakes. Can you just whip up a batch of those? These guys are going to love them. Hey, young man out in the field, uh, man, you you smoke the best beef I have ever had in my life. So can you just take this calf and can you prepare it for these guys? And then after all this was prepared, Abraham served his visitors. Listen, it's this cooperative effort that reminds us that if we truly want to serve the Lord, make much of him throughout the earth, we cannot do it by ourselves. 
And the reason goes back to what we covered really early on in the series. Um, If you were here when we talked creation, Genesis 1 and 2, we learned that in the beginning, God created mankind in his image. And the language in Genesis 1 is really interesting. When he actually does this, his exact words are, let us create man in our image. Who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Father himself. He's talking about Jesus, the Son. He's talking about God, the Holy Spirit. These three persons that make up the Trinity who have existed in perfect community throughout eternity. And so as people being created in the image of that God means that we too have this need for community and relationships in our lives. But it also means that in order to bear the image of that God rightly in the world, we need each other's help. Like we can't do it alone. It's impossible for you to put a relational God on display by avoiding relationships. Right? The only way to do it is by walking with and serving with other followers of Jesus Christ. We serve cooperatively. Now, after Abraham serves the Lord in those ways, quickly, humbly, generously, cooperatively, I love this. The Lord and his angels sit down and they eat his meal. This is the only time, by the way, in the Old Testament that we see the Lord sharing a meal with a human being before the incarnation. Before he shows up, second person of the Trinity, in flesh, as Jesus Christ. Only time. And his eating is highly significant because in this ancient culture, sharing a meal with someone was an intimate expression of friendship. Like by eating with another person, you were literally saying to them, I love you, I accept you, I trust you, I'm committed to you. And so based on that understanding, what we know is simply this. In sharing this meal with Abraham, the Lord was declaring to him, we're friends. Abraham, I just want you to know we're friends. And it was important for Abraham to know that he was friends with the Lord because of what the Lord would go on to say next. Look at verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Don't you love the Bible? Like, I just love that honesty. Any 90-year-old woman, that's her response, right? Like, nope, this ain't happening. The Lord then says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? And here is the key phrase of the text. If you write in your Bibles, underline this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? For the Lord, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. She gets (laughs) called out. We're going to come back to that at the very end of the message. But here's what's happening. After the visitors ask Abraham about the location of his wife, Sarah, uh, the Lord goes on to repeat the news that he gave Abraham back in Genesis 17, 21. I just want you to know, in a year from now, I'm going to open the womb of your barren wife, and at 90 years old, she's going to give birth to a son. (laughs) Well, as this conversation is playing out, Sarah is just inside the door of the tent, and if you can picture it, the back of the Lord is to her, this is what the text tells us, as she's eavesdropping on the conversation. 
And as she hears that announcement, she just starts laughing to herself. And the reason she laughs, it's simple. She knows it is humanly impossible for her to have children. I mean, not only has she been barren her entire life, but she's 90 years old at this point, which means she is postmenopausal. That's what the Bible means when it says that the way of women ceased to be with her. And so as she's laughing to herself, she starts talking to herself and she says, no way that's happening. I mean, I'm an old, worn out woman. I am married to an old, worn out man. And if that dude outside the tent thinks I'm about to have sexual pleasure or the pleasure of birthing a child at this point in my life, that brother is smoking something not happening. And it's at this point that Abraham and Sarah learn a very valuable lesson about the Lord. And the lesson is this, that God knows all things and can do anything. <laughs> Come on, 10 o'clock, are you with me out there? God knows all things and can do anything. Just visualize the scene with me again, if you will, okay? Abraham and the Lord outside the tent talking. Sarah is inside the tent listening, and she's having a conversation with herself. She is not speaking out loud. She has an internal dialogue going on, which I'm sure made it all the more surprising when she heard the Lord say to her husband, why did Sarah just laugh and say, I'm not going to have a child at this age? Like what in the, I mean, that's some weird stuff going on in this moment, right? But, but what she was experiencing is what's known as the omniscience of God. Omniscience means that God knows all things and that God sees all things, including the very thoughts that run through our minds. You know, we learned a couple weeks ago from the story of Hagar that God sees us. From this story, we learned that God also sees inside of us. But not only is God omniscient, he's also omnipotent. Omnipotent means that God is all-powerful, that he can do anything. Nothing is too hard for him, even when it seems impossible to us. And this is what he wants them to acknowledge when he asks them that question I pointed out for you a moment ago. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the right answer to that question is no. He can do anything. I mean, think about this with me. We're talking about the God who spoke creation into being. The God who reached down into the dust of the earth and formed mankind with his very own hands. This is the God who saved his people from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt through a series of miraculous plagues, and then he parted a sea so they could escape on dry land. Right? This is the God who made the sun stand still in the sky for Joshua. The same God who empowered a teenage shepherd boy named David to slay a mighty giant with a slingshot and a few stones. This is the God who took a terrified servant named Gideon and he used him to defeat a massive army with only 300 men carrying some trumpets and torches. Right in the New Testament, this is the God who healed the sick, raised the dead, cleansed lepers, restored sight to the blind, made the lame to walk again. The God who calmed storms by the very power of his word. This is the God who walked on water, who fed thousands and thousands of people on more than one occasion with just a few loaves of bread and some measly fish. And ultimately, this is the God who died on a cross for the sins of the world and rose from the dead three days later to defeat sin, death, and hell forever. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Not a chance. And listen, listen, I think some of you need that reminder today. Because some of you walked into this room, and like Sarah, you are facing an impossible situation right now. A situation that you know is too hard for you. 
And so you're sitting in your seat right now, and if you're being honest, you'd have to confess, I'm struggling because I have no idea how I'm going to overcome it or how I'm going to see my way through it. And if that is you today, I just want to encourage you with another amazing truth, and I pray that this gives you some hope. Here's the truth. God always keeps his promises to his friends. (laughs) God always keeps his promises to his friends. The good news of the gospel tells us this. That if we know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, like Abraham, God calls us friends. And I know that's really hard for some of you to believe, isn't it? Because of the life you've lived, because of certain things you've done, you're looking at yourself and going, no way I can be a friend of God. You are if you know Jesus Christ. Because hear me, friendship with God doesn't depend upon you at all. It depends entirely upon what Jesus Christ has done for you. Like God calling you a friend isn't about your power, your effort, your might. It's about the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Right? Paul talks about this in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5. Uh, this is the good news Bible translation. I love the way it's put here. Listen, we were God's enemies, but he has made us friends through the death of his son. And now that we are God's friends, how much more will we be saved by Christ's life? But that is not all. We rejoice because of what God has done through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has now made us God's friends. Listen, Paul is simply teaching here that apart from Jesus Christ, we're all in the same boat. Doesn't matter how holy you think you are, how heathen you think you are, apart from Jesus, we are all enemies of God. Our sin separates us from him, and it puts us at enmity with him. Yet, when we trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ... In faith, we declare he is God's Savior, Lord, and King. By his life, death, and resurrection, he has saved me out of sin, death, and hell and restored me back into a right relationship with God. When we believe that, God in his grace turns us from enemies into friends. And again, the big truth is God always keeps his promises to his friends. I want you to think about a close friend in your life right now, a human friend. And here's my question for you. If that friend makes you a promise... Do you ever worry about them coming through on their word? If so, you might want to get a new friend or at least think about somebody different for this moment because it it only works if you're thinking about the right kind of friend, right? But listen, probably not. You probably don't worry about it. Why? Because you know that their promise to you is based on the intimacy of the relationship you share with them. In other words, you know they love me and they're committed to me. And so I'm confident that they're actually going to do what they've committed to do. Well, listen to me. That same principle applies to your relationship with God. If you're a friend of God through Jesus Christ, his son, he will always keep his promises to you, number one, because of who he is. He's perfect. He's sinless. He's holy. He doesn't lie, nor does he ever break his word. But listen to me. He also keeps his promises because his promises are based on the intimacy of the relationship he shares with us as his friends. And so let me make it really practical for you today, okay? Uh, Let's say you're someone in the room who needs physical healing. God promises to heal you as a friend. Now, would you look up here at me? Because I don't need you leaving thinking I'm saying something I'm not saying, okay? I can't promise you that he's going to heal you on this side of eternity. He might, but he might not. But in eternity where sin, suffering, death, and sickness are no more, God's promise is to heal you once and for all, fully and forever. So healing's on the way, all right? Don't you worry about it, it's on the way. Let's say you're someone in need of provision today. God promises to provide for you as a friend, 
if, look, if you will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's what Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, isn't it? That when we prioritize the kingdom of God, that God prioritizes our earthly kingdoms. And that doesn't mean that you always get everything you want from God. It just means that you get everything you need from God to survive and to serve him. Or what about this? Let's say you're someone in the room today who needs supernatural strength from God to make it through a trial or a hardship you're facing. God promises to give you strength as a friend. Look, if you'll stop trying to be strong for yourself, if you'll take your hands off of your situation and stop trying to be in control and humble yourself before him and actually ask in faith for his help. I mean, I could give you examples all day long, but the truth, again, is really simple. If you're a friend of God through Jesus Christ, his son, God is committed to keeping all of his promises to you. Unfortunately, and this is where we'll close, unfortunately, that's a truth Sarah struggled to believe. And as I pointed out earlier, she got called out for it, right? I'm going to find it comical that in this moment where the Lord gently rebuked her, and it was just a gentle rebuke, that she attempted to retract her laughter. Oh, no, no, I didn't laugh. And the Lord goes, oh, no, no, you did. You laughed. As if to say, and you shouldn't have. Why? Because her laughter proved that she doubted the power of God to perform his promises in her life. Just a few weeks ago, I got a small taste of this kind of doubt in my own home. I was bathing my three-year-old daughter, Selah. Uh, she's she's uh, our youngest kid. Again, seven-year-old, three-year-old. Selah hates having her hair washed. And so to wash her hair, we usually have to wet it with a washcloth, put the shampoo in, and we lean her back in the shallowest part of the tub and just kind of, you know, drape the water over her head to get the shampoo out. So I'm just getting ready to lean her back into the water when she stops me, and in a panic, she says, Daddy, are you as strong as Mommy? (laughs) And I got to be honest, in that moment, I was kind of offended. I'm like, seriously? Your mommy's like a buck 15 soaking wet. Like, I'm a grown man. Of course I'm as strong as mommy. And, you know, in fact, I might be a little bit stronger than her. And so I said to my daughter, baby, look, you can trust me. I promise as your daddy, I have what it takes to hold you up in six inches of water. (laughs) But that got me thinking. Listen, I wonder how the great God of the universe feels when we as weak, sinful frail, finite human beings say to him by our actions and our attitude, God, I don't know if you're strong enough to do this. God, I'm in a panic right now because I just don't know if I can trust you to come through on your word to me. I imagine that his response is how I responded to my daughter, right? He's looking at us like I was looking at her going, really? Like, number one, do you know who I am? And number two, do you know how easy that is for me? Listen, as we close, I just want to reiterate, in case I haven't been clear or in case you nodded off at some point during the message, listen, listen, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing. Our God knows all things and our God can do anything. And if you are a friend of God through Jesus Christ, God will come through on your behalf. And so as we pray, I just thought we would take time today to thank God in advance for what we know he will do. Can we do that together? Just all over the room. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. And as they come, why don't you just begin to thank the Lord. Thank Him for who He is. Just thank Him. God, thank You for knowing all things, that You're never caught by surprise. 
Thank you for being a God of impossibilities. Just thank him for that. Thank you, God, that what's too hard for me is never too hard for you. If you're struggling today, going through a hard season right now, why don't you just thank God that he has the strength and the power to pull you through? And why don't you ask him to give you in grace what you need to get through it? Just thank him in advance. Just tell him right now, God, thank you that healing is on the way. Thank you that provision is on the way. Thank you, God, that every promise you've made me will come to pass in my life at some point. And just ask God to anchor your heart and soul in the hope that you have in him. Listen, as many of us are praying and thanking God, I have to imagine that there are others of us in the room right now who are having a hard time thanking God for the future because we don't know what the future holds. And the reason we're unsure is because we've never put our faith in Jesus Christ. Like that whole friendship with God thing that we talked about today, we've never experienced that. And if that's you in the room, I just want to say to you again, God loves you deeply. He gave up the life of his one and only son to turn you from an enemy into a friend. And he always keeps his promises to his friends. And so if you need to become a friend of God today through Jesus Christ, to have your life changed, to know the hope of an eternity spent with God just in faith where you're seated, why don't you just pray and say something like this? Just tell him, God, I want to be your friend. I know that because of my sin right now, I'm your enemy. But I believe Jesus came to change all that. And so I put my faith in his death on the cross for me. I put my faith in his resurrection from the dead. I believe that because of what he's done, I can be loved and accepted by you. And so, God, forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future. Take hold of my life. Change me into the person you want me to be. And, God, make me a friend today. I say yes to Jesus. Listen, with heads bowed and eyes still closed all across the room, if you prayed that with me, I want to ask you to do me a simple favor, just wherever you're seated. Uh, would you right now in this moment just lift a hand to let us know you've done that? Just wherever you are, floor or the balcony. James, that's me ask God to make me a friend today. If you'll just keep your hand up for a moment. Our prayer team has a resource they want to give you. And as soon as you receive it, you can place your hand back down. Anybody else, James, that's me. Put my faith in Jesus today for the first time. Ask God to make me a friend. Anybody else? It's me today. Awesome. God, we just want to thank you for who you are. I thank you for these men and women that just put their trust and faith in you. God, I pray that, God, they would experience, uh, God, just what an amazing thing it is to be loved by you and accepted by you, to be called a friend by you. And so, God, just show up in their life, even right now in this moment, in an undeniable way. Father, for the rest of us, God, for all of us, we just thank you for who you are. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the hope you give. And God, we thank you that our future is secure because of your son, Jesus Christ. God, help us to live in light of that every day. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.